kidding. Uh, God showed his faithfulness uh, again this week um, in many ways, in your lives and in lots of activity in the life of our church. I was just recognizing that there was something going on on this campus and in uh, groups of people in our church just about every day this week. Ask Aaron about that and ask Paige about that. I think it was every night for those guys. This place, in fact, had... If you didn't see the pictures on Instagram, you need to get an Instagram account and follow uh, co-student ministry because this place on Friday night, it was Friday night hype for junior hires, and it was glow in the dark night, and it was awesome. And uh, anyway, that's besides the point. I'm here to talk about Nick Vujicic and Unstoppable Faith Outreach that happened this week. Uh, Along with everything else that God was doing, he saw fit to draw uh, probably over, I, don't, I haven't heard the final numbers, but over 3,000 people together to five different locations across our city from UCSB to Calvary Chapel, First Baptist, uh, Living Faith, Hope Community, um, forgetting one, I think. Yep, that's Hope, but that's, yep, anyway, five different places, Westmont on Friday morning, uh, he, uh, and and. Among those 3,000-plus people who came, over 500 people came forward to receive Jesus into their heart and into their life. And uh, that is a, a monumental um, week in the life of the church in Santa Barbara. And uh, we're just so thankful for uh, our brother, Nick Vujicic, who came and, you know, it just made me tired just thinking about what he did and what he does traveling the globe to speak to people about the love and the hope that he's found in Jesus. Uh, but what an inspirational uh, message that, that many of us who were able to hear him at different places this week were able to hear, and not only to, to hear that, but to watch what God was doing in the hearts of people as they listened and responded to the, the message of hope and grace that's found in Jesus. So I just wanted Tom and, and, and Nicole to share a little bit about what they experienced, so I'll let Nicole go first. A little bit about what you experienced this week. We were there at First Baptist on Wednesday night. What an amazing time it was. Yeah, um, I was talking with Carmen, and I felt really guilty about coming because they didn't bring a person, but I had talked about it with a lot of people. Um, and it turned out that me and Carmen, where's Carmen? Um, anyways, the sound guy was there, and I know him since, like, this away, so... I was like, we have a person. But um, anyways, it was amazing to see how many people just kept coming and coming and coming and coming. And the side of the building opens up to the outside. And so just like there was sound flowing out and the worship was great. And, um, you know, just was a beautiful evening with so many people. I don't know how many people came to that event, but more than the church fit. More than there were seats for, yes. Um, so, yeah. yeah. What, what was it about Nick's message, anything, Nicole, that, that kind of struck your heart or just in particular that you could see was just a, I mean, this man, if you haven't seen the pictures or heard the stories yet, Nick Vujicic, born without arms, without legs, just an amazing uh, testimony of God's provision, God's use of him, of his surrender, his willingness to to be thankful for, uh, to not complain about what he doesn't have, but to be thankful for what he does have and to use that all for the glory of God. Story after story 
of God's grace at work in his life. Anything in particular just kind of stand out to you? Well, there was one sentence that he said that really stood out to me and a story. Um, one of the things he said is, isn't it amazing how a man without arms and legs can come onto this earth and be the hands and feet of the Lord, yeah. which is so amazing. And also, we ha had a great moment with him afterwards where we got to talk to him and meet him and gives the best hugs ever. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, but one of my favorite stories was the story about how he was called to help pray for this woman who had some sort of paralysis. She was not moving and not able to walk. And he was called by his friend in the area where he was. And he goes, and it was a long prayer and a lot of work. And um, she gets up and she walks. I mean, it was an amazing miracle. And he's leaving with his friend that had called him, and they're, they've left. And he, his friend is just stunned. He's like, I can't believe that happened. I can't believe that happened. Do you know who that woman is? And he's like, no. And um, his friend says, she's really evil. And um, Nick's like, why? What did she do? And he happened to be in an area where there was a lot of sex slavery. And, yeah. and um, she basically started this area in the 1960s and said, you know, she owned this big part of land. And she says, I'm going to bring, start a brothel. And, um, you know, she was like the beginning of all of this sin and hate and hurt and... Um, so it's just a really great story how he told it and then how it comes around that this woman who had such big sin in her life could still receive the redemption right. of Christ's blood. That's right. That's right. Awesome. And uh, we got to pray with some folks afterwards out on the patio and just awesome to see God at work in yeah. the hearts and lives of people. And from all ages. Yeah. Which was wonderful. Yeah. yeah. So sweet. Thanks, Nicole. And Tom, you got to go Friday night over to Calvary Chapel, and where there were some guys from the rescue mission, I think, as well. But what were your experiences? Well, about two months ago, I think it was, James asked me to assist him. He teaches a class every Thursday morning to the men in phase one and phase two down at the rescue mission. That's men in the first six months. And it's been an amazing experience, because here are men that are there, somebody well, all by choice, but some that are just kind of going through the program and not necessarily knowing the Lord yet. As we sat, stand there, and James will attest to this, many of them sat in the class every morning. It's a one-hour class, pretty much asleep. Not when not I all teach. Not all of them. <laughs> not when I teach. Only me. I don't but, know what he's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm saying not, they just kind of sat there. They're there. They're going through the motions. And... When the challenge was issued to go see Nick at one of these, I was trying to think, who do I know? Most of my associations right now are with believers. And so I didn't know who to invite and stuck my head into LB down there and asked, were they, were they going over? And he says, go ahead, invite them. And so I invited our class to, to come over. I said, I'll be there greeting you. Well, about a dozen that I counted. Now, there may have been more there just to walk across the street to Calvary Chapel. There may have been more, but I saw a dozen from our class. And when the altar call went up, about 10 of them went up. Now, what's touching to me about that is, nine years ago, 
God laid on my heart to start not preaching, but ministering to people with brokenness in their lives. Now, it was amazing because I had a lot of brokenness in a lot of ways. So to stand there and listen to him start his sermon or his preaching, teaching about brokenness, broken pieces, and how there is someone who will take those broken pieces and do something, to watch these men go forward who really are in a hopeless position in their lives was so amazing to me that this inspiration happened. They were pulled forward, and I can't say anything more. I've heard him speak before, not the way he did Friday night. It was an amazing experience. If you've missed it, he's planning to try to get back here. He's talking about putting a tent up to hold 8,000 people. I think we should fill it. Awesome. Thanks, Tom. Um, and Nicole, you guys can have a seat. What a, what a great week. And we, we prayed and we trusted, we participated. Many of you have just been lifting this time to the Lord in prayer. You invited and uh, people came and the gospel was preached. And we're just believing that uh, that, that will not only have a, a, a week's effect, but will have an eternity uh, effect. And so we want to continue to pray, and we want to continue to work on behalf of those who came forward in particular, and just believe that God would, would conserve the converts, if you will, or preserve that fruit that was born even this week. Um, and we'll be making some phone calls to people and just following up, and even those within our own church who prayed this week to receive Christ in a fresh way um, in your hearts. We want to be intentional in following up and helping and providing the care that's uh, needed for you and for your loved ones. So let's just take a moment even right now to pray for that, can we? God, thank you so much for this week. We just praise you, Lord. You have shown yourself in abundance this week. Uh, we, we got to hear our brother proclaim the gospel. We, we got to hear him testify to the hope and the life that he has found in Jesus. We got to hear him testify to the way that you've been able to use someone with the disabilities and to be reminded, as he tells us, told us that if you put the letters G-O in front of disable, you get God is able. And to be reminded that you are able and you have done an amazing work again. We thank you for the churches that participated, for all the all the ones who came together to not only invite people, but to be there to pray with folks and just to support them and to, to sort of nurture that, that moment from evening to evening. We thank you for uh, all those who, who came uh, invited, who, who were, were new to, to, to church, new to the whole idea, but came and listened, and especially for those who responded in faith this week, who who felt the Holy Spirit knocking on the door of their heart and opened it up so that Jesus, you would be able to come in and have fellowship with them. And, and those who stepped forward and, and, and took a stand for a, a relationship with Jesus, knowing that that wasn't an easy thing to do necessarily. And we pray now for churches and for these who responded to, to find a connection and for there to be community and for there to be relationship and for there to be discipleship and for these to not only come to faith but to grow in faith and to become all that you would have them to be, to grow as your people. And we pray for the church of Jesus Christ in this community to be strengthened. We pray that 
the effects of this week would be long-lasting, that for weeks and months and years to come, people would be talking about that unstoppable faith outreach, that people who came to faith this week would become leaders and pastors and people who would be guiding the church and people who would be reaching out now to their networks of friends and relatives and others who don't know you, Jesus, that this would not be by any means the end of the revival, but the beginning, that the church would be revived and that the gospel would be proclaimed and that more ground would be taken for the kingdom. So Jesus, we just thank you that this week as you were lifted up, you drew people to yourself And uh, we're trusting that you will continue to do so, that even us with arms and legs might be the hands and feet of Jesus in the world in the days to come. And for that, we give you thanks. And we do just pray for Nick Vujicic, and we just pray you continue to bless his ministry and uh, that you'd resource him, energize him, encourage him, uh, just just be with him as he continues to, to speak your truth Uh, to the many places where he is invited, God. Um, Be with him, bless him, bless his family, even today. We love you so much, God. We are so grateful to be a part of the mission of God, the work that you are doing in the world. And again, to see it so beautifully uh, this week, uh, we are grateful for all this and for so much more. We give you thanks and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you just stand up and greet one another in the name of the Lord? And uh, kids, if you're a, a kid who will be going to children's church, would you come down here first? During the greeting time, kids, come on down here, would you? What's that? And uh, so I'm telling you, there was lots happening this week. And uh, I saw some of those pictures. And there's a sweet photo op, uh, hay bale and picture down by the children's child care area if anybody wants to take another sweet picture. But thank you for those of you who did that. I have a book that I want to read to these guys, and you guys can listen in if you want to. Um, uh, I would encourage you to do so. But um, I have a book that's written, it was written by a a good friend actually of Kyla's and mine from uh, our college days. Her name's Kristen Farley. She's uh, just a great gal. And uh, we went to Point Loma together. She lives over in Arizona now. But she published a couple of children's books a few years back. And uh, this one is called What's True About You? And I don't think I've ever read this. Kyla maybe has read this to some of you guys. But as I thought about what I want to talk to your parents, the older people today, this seemed to fit so well with that. But such an important message for for all of us to hear. Um, Maybe especially after uh, hearing from Nick this week and some of the, um, some of the bullying that he encountered. I don't know um, what it might, if you guys have ever felt anything like that, but sometimes when you're different, when you look different, when things are different about you, people point that out. And sometimes we begin to hear things from people that, uh, that just aren't true, and we begin to believe those things, and it can be discouraging, it can be hurtful, it can really... Bring us, bring us down. And what we need to do and what this book is all about is remembering what is true. Remembering what's true about you. So I want to read that, this book to you guys, and I want you to hear it. Now, the pictures, I have to... She wrote one for boys and for girls, and I picked the one for girls. So boys, when you see pictures of girls, just imagine that there's a picture of a boy there too, all right? Okay, um... Here it is. What's true about you, my child so sweet? 
is that God loves you from your head to your feet. He made you just the way you are, a beautiful, gentle, shining star. Remember each moment what's true about you. What others may say and others may do to make you feel bad or put shame on you is not what your good God says about you. He says you are precious, caring, and kind, generous, smart, and worth his time. He loves to be with you at work or at play. So keep your thoughts on him throughout the day. Life has its ups and its downs. But through every struggle, God is around. Learning to see him and feel him and hear the wonderful things that he says in your ear is the key to knowing just who you are. God's beautiful one, dear to his heart. So when you are hurt and broken within, sit quiet and wait and listen for him. He'll speak in your thoughts so soft and so clear. Sweet child of mine, I am here. I love you and my strength is great. You can trust me as you wait. I see clearly what to do and I will always take care of you. No fear, my beautiful one. Don't look around. Just look at my son. Jesus has made a way for you and I feel about him as I feel about you. You are mine, my joy, in you I delight through the brightest day and the darkest night. Lean back into me, sweet one that I love. Let heaven come down to you from above. And each moment comes, as each moment comes, may your thoughts be consumed with things excellent, loving, pure, and true. Whatever you say and whatever you do, you can't change the way that I feel about you. So listen, as I'll soon repeat, what's true about you, my child so sweet. Remember what is true about you. And she writes on the back, and just for you guys to hear this, this book was written so children will hear the heart of God's love. As we read this book to our children, adults, and as we've thought about it this morning, May we continue to find creative ways to speak blessing into our kids' lives. And may we live as truly loved children of God, all of us, and be a reflection of his love to our world. Remember what's true about you. God loves you. You are his child. And I think you're pretty awesome too. Have a great time at Children's Church. You can head on out, all right? Give him a high five. Hi, Rudy. You want the book? I'll read it to you later, for sure. Okay? 
Can I just stay here a little bit longer? It's cool, Rudy. Milk it. Milk it, bro. Milk it, bro. I got no problems. I got no problems. I'll, I'll share my stage with that guy anytime. Oh, man. So good. Well, we're studying this book, 1 John, this fall, and uh, we're calling it Living in the Light. Uh, we're, we've been saying that John invites his readers to live in the light in at least a couple of different ways. Live in the light of, of understanding, to live in the light of understanding particularly who Jesus is. Danny shared with us last week, there was some false teaching that was slipping into the early church that that uh, John was trying to, to counter, to oppose, to, to correct. And part of that false teaching was about the nature of who Jesus was and what he came to do. And so, no doubt, John wants us to live in this light of understanding of who Jesus was. But, but also, John wants us to live in this, in this, in this light of, of, of holy living, this, this, this light of, of purity, of righteousness, of being and doing all that God created us to be and do, to not be satisfied with sort of a halfway Christian life, to not be satisfied with just sort of getting by, but to, but to live into the light of, of victory, to live into the light of, of life, full and abundant, both now and forever. And so today we come to chapter 3, and uh, what we find is that John, I believe John has sort of written his own version of what's true about you. And um, now it's not just for kids, although he does refer to his audience as dear children a time or two. But, but what he's written here, I think, is a what's true about you for, for the people of God, what's true about God himself, what's true about who we are as the church. And he just, throughout this chapter, just, just lays out these statements of beautiful and amazing truth. These folks were going through a difficult time. Again, we've been learning that this, this church or this group of churches, most likely, that John was writing to that, that had sort of been following his particular uh, instruction and, and uh, were maybe known as, uh, he was maybe sort of the bishop of these churches, they were having a difficult time. Uh, again, reminded there, were fa- there was false teaching that in- infiltrated the church. We know that that still happens today. Sometimes that can happen even in the church today, and it can cause great problems. Well, back then, as the church is just getting started, and, and the, the importance of having this core uh, orthodox doctrine and having it start to get sidetracked was a great problem. And we know that people were, were leaving the church. Some were leaving because they were starting their own brand of the Christian tradition some were leaving because they were being asked to leave, because they were distracting and pulling people away from the true faith. There was great division. There was, there was probably some bitterness, maybe even some, some, some anger, maybe even some discouragement, for sure some discouragement, and without a doubt, also some doubt even within those folks. They were beaten down, likely questioning their value, likely questioning their future. If, if this church, we can't even get it off the ground. I mean, we just start to, and so suddenly we're, we're being broken apart. Great questions in this church. And so into this reality 
comes John and other biblical writers, of course. But into this reality comes John speaking this word of truth. And in this chapter in particular, painting a picture of the reality that God was creating that would help this church not only to hang on, not only to persevere, just to kind of grit their teeth and get through, but, but painting a picture that would help them to, to thrive, would help them to, to, to live, that would help them to become and, and grow again into all that God was inviting them to become. And I just thought that as I read this chapter again this week, that how, how good it is for us. I mean, we don't have the same context that this early group of churches did, but we face our own brand of discouragement, our own sense of doubt. We maybe have our own questions as to our own value as individual believers or as the, as the church of Jesus Christ. We, we sometimes have our own division, our own discouragement among the community, our own problems with, with belief and theology and orthodox understanding, we too need to be reminded of what is really true about God, about his church, and about his people. So how good for us to hear it. I want you just to listen. I'm not going to have you stand. It'll be on the screen. But I'm going to read this whole chapter, verses 1 to 24 of chapter 3. And I want you just to listen. And I'm going to come back and I'm going to draw out several of these truths. But I want you to listen. I want us to just, just be amazed. Now, you're going to hear this, this passage. And there are, there's two different ways that I think you can listen to this passage. All right, the first way is this. And this is maybe our, our instinct. The first way to listen to this passage is to be like, whoa. And it almost is like a, sounds like a word of warning or a word of threat or a word of condition or a word of if, if not, then. The other way that I think you can listen to this, though, and the way I've been listening to it and I want to invite you to is to hear it as a word of, of promise, a word of truth, a word of hope, a word of invitation. So look with me there in your Bibles, John, 1 John chapter 3, and uh, I'll read this uh, chapter, verses 1 to 24. Just listen to the word of the Lord. See how much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that is what we are. But the people who belong in this, to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what, will we, what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. Everyone who sins is breaking God's law, for all sin is contrary to the law of God. And you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin. But anyone who keeps on sinning does not know him or understand who he is. <clears throat> Dear children, don't let anyone deceive you about this. When people do what is right, it shows that they are righteous, even as Christ is righteous. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil who has been sinning since the beginning. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. So they can't keep on sinning because they're children of God. So now we can tell who are children of God, who are children of the devil. Anyone who does not live righteously and does not love other believers does not belong to God. 
Verse 11, this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We should love one another. We must not be like Cain who belonged to the evil one and killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because Cain had been doing what was evil and his brother had been doing what was righteous. So don't be surprised, dear brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. If we love our brothers and sisters who are believers, it proves that we have passed from death to life. But a person who has no love is still dead. Anyone who hates another brother or sister is really a murderer at heart. And you know that murderers don't have eternal life within them. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. If someone has enough money to live well and sees a brother or sister in need but shows no compassion, how can God's love be in that person? Dear children, let us, let's not merely say that we love each other. Let us show the truth by our actions. Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before God. Even if we feel guilty, God is greater than our feelings and he knows everything. Dear friends, if we don't feel guilty, we can come to God with bold confidence and we will receive from him whatever we ask because we obey him and do the things that please him. And this is his commandment. We must believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. Those who obey God's commandments remain in fellowship with him and he with them. And we know he lives in us because the spirit he gave us lives in us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And it's a long word, but I trust it's a good word. And um, sometimes uh, you know, I, I thought all week, maybe I should just shorten that. And every time I thought about shortening, I thought, what am I going to leave out? What am I going to leave out? And how important it is for us just to hear and submit ourselves to the word of the Lord as we've done again here this morning. What's true about you? What's true about us as the people of God? Well, I, I want you to buckle your seatbelt, and I know what time it is, but I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you um, and just don't freak out, but I'm going to give you right now 10 truths for living in the light that John gives us. Now, I've never preached a 10-point sermon, <coughs> so I really don't know how this is going to go, but I'm, I'm, gonna just gonna, I'm just going to go quickly. But as I read this passage over and over, these, really, these 10 just sort of lifted themselves off the page to me, truths that we need to hold on to. Uh, again, uh, they're, they're all good, they're all true, so buckle up. Ten truths for living in the light, ten truths for God's people. These are different potential titles. Ten truths for the church to stand on, ten truths to guide our life together. Ten truths that I'm so glad are really true. I think that's my favorite. Uh, so here's the first one. Those who put their faith in God are his children, a part of his family. Those who put their faith in God are his children, part of his family. This summer, I did a wedding, and it was a first for me in officiating a wedding because I got there, and I performed the wedding, and after the ceremony, I went to sign the wedding license, and the couple had not ever gotten a wedding license. <coughs> that was problematic. That's an issue. Um, so they were married in the sight of God. It was all good. Go, you know, forth and be fruitful or whatever you're going to do. But... Um, <laughs> 
Um, but, uh, but in the eyes of the state and, and all the other rights and privileges that come along with being married, it wasn't quite official. So the next week, they had to go down to a justice of the peace because it was in a different city a few hours away from where uh, I was and get sort of remarried and get the justice of the peace to sign on to their wedding license. Now, um, then they finally became official, all the rights and privileges of being in the same family together. Now, here's the deal. Everyone who is created by God is in some sense a child of God. All right, so every human being, let's just make that clear. Every, every create, created being of God is in some sense his, his child. But, but, when, but when we come to faith in Jesus, when we come to this saving personal relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, then, then in a very special and new sense, we become his, 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 his children. We're not only called his children. I love how John says that. We are his children. Children, we are part of the family of God. God is our Father. We sang it this morning. He is a good, good Father. John said it in a similar fashion in his gospel in chapter 1, verse 12. He said it like this, But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. What an amazing promise, an amazing truth that as we come to faith, We are given all the rights and privileges, all the joys and responsibilities. We are children of God. We are part of his family. Hold on to this truth. Here's number two. When Jesus comes again, we will see him as he really is and be like him. See, these folks in John's church, in the early church, they needed to know that not only were things going to be good for now, but they needed to know that things were going to be good for eternity. And so John gives them this amazing, this amazing passage. Uh, Look at verse 2. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. Now, when I was growing up, we had, my parents are here today. Hi, Mom and Dad. Um, when, we were, when I was growing up, we had a picture of Jesus hanging in our house. And uh, they still have that same picture of Jesus hanging in their house. We, we you know, we, whatever. You, I don't know what you're supposed to do with a picture of Jesus, but we kind of wave whenever we walk by it. <laughs> it was by our door, uh, our front door when I was growing up. So whenever my friends would come over, they'd always be like, hey. Okay. And, and uh, I think that was intentional. My mom was maybe trying to shape the activity of the house under the watchful eye of Jesus. Um, but, but, you know, I, we have these pictures of Jesus. And just, just to remind us all, these are not photos. These are not snapshots. We really don't know what he looked like. Um, but, but they help just kind of stir our hearts a little bit into what Jesus may have looked like and artist renditions and all these things. But as, as nice as it is to look at an artist's rendition, can you imagine? And this is the scene what John is trying to paint for these people. Can you imagine? There's lots of what we don't know about what it will be like when God begins his new creation. There, there's so much that we don't know. And he acknowledges that. But there's, there's at least two things that John says we do know. That we will see Jesus face to face. And when we do, we will become like him. And throughout his little book here, he keeps talking about, even in this passage, 
Uh, it keeps talking about how Jesus is our model. Jesus is the one that is our pattern for righteousness. Jesus is the one that we should try to live our lives after. Well, as he's our model on earth, he will be our model in heaven as well. He's the one that we are to pattern our lives after. And as we come to see him face to face, face to face, we will have that opportunity. The real risen Jesus, when we meet him and he meets us, will far outshine any pictures that we may have seen. His face will transform ours, and we will begin to take on his likeness in new ways. When Jesus comes again, we'll see him as he really is and be like him. Here's number three. Jesus, John says, came to take away our sins. I know you know that. I hope you know that. If there's somebody here that doesn't know that today, then you need to know that. Jesus came to take away our sins. Look at verse 5. John just says it, and you know that Jesus came to take away our sins, and there is no sin in him. He says that he will come to make us more like him, but he has already come that we might be forgiven, that our sins might be taken away. This was Jesus' purpose, his mission, his whole incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, even his ascension were pointing towards this purpose. This is why he came. Nick Vujicic this week said that his life goal is to preach to 7 billion people. You know how many people there are, on, there are on the earth? Seven billion. That's his goal, to preach to every person on the earth. What a, what a great goal. I think he's up to like, what do you say, 600 million? Is that right? Something like that? And, and so, I mean, he's, he's, you know, he's been on live television in Russia and, and saw, I think, like 150 to 250 million people saw him in one shot. Uh, pretty cool. Pretty great ambition. Great goal. Well, Jesus' goal was even greater. It was to come to take away our sins. He did lots of great stuff when he came, but none of it surpasses this primary purpose. He was a great teacher. He was a kind, compassionate healer. He was all these wonderful things, but he was in his primary function and focus the one who came to take away sins. What a great promise. What a great truth. Uh, uh, Theologian Adam Clark, I love this quote. Just hear it really quick. Jesus came into the world to destroy the power, to pardon the guilt, and cleanse from the pollution of sin. Listen to this. Can it be supposed that he either cannot or will not accomplish the object of his own coming? And this is why he came. This is what he came to do. Can we suppose that he couldn't do it or wouldn't do it? No, this is what he came to do, to take away our sin. Here's number four. Those who continue to live in Christ will not sin. This is the, this is the controversy. This is First John's controversy. This is the one that commentators, as I even read them this week, love to, ex- love to explain. They love to... Uh, interpret. They love to get a different angle. They love to suggest what he really meant when he said this or offer some alternate conclusion as to what John was actually trying to say here. But if we just step back, and it's not only in this place, but in other places in his little letter as well, and read it for its face value, this is what he says. Those who continue to live in Christ will not sin. This is the hope of transformation. Now, we like to focus on the second part, uh, in fact, let's just look at verse 6. Anyone who continues to live in him will not sin, but anyone who keeps on sinning 
does not know him or understand who he is. Just leave that there for a second. If you look up at the italics, we like to focus on the second part, to live in him, will not sin. We forget about the first part, anyone who continues. But we can't look at the second part without remembering the first part. The only way the second part can be possible is because the first part is happening. Today is my wife's birthday. I'm not going to tell you how old she is, but she's as old as me. And we, and we have been married for 23 years, and we've been married for half her life. So the, so the math whizzes in the room can figure it out. I'm just, you know, I'm not going to tell you, but you can figure it out. But, but I like this because what this means is that, that my influence on her is gaining the majority rule. And, uh, and, and... And yours on me, no doubt about it. Um, for half her life, we've been remaining together. We've been, we've been staying together. The, the, the word for this continues is to remain or to abide, to, to be together in relationship. And, and that's what we've been doing. And, and if we were to say, you know, well, we got married 23 years ago, but we haven't really talked for the last 23 years. Um, you know, would our relationship be very, very healthy? No, it wouldn't be. But it's because over those years we've abided, we've remained in relationships so that our marriage and our life together can be healthy. Well, this is the same thing. Now, now let's be clear. John knows, of course, that Christians are going to sin. He already talked about that in chapter 2. And he already talked about in chapter 1 how if you claim you haven't sinned, you're a liar. You know, so, I mean... He's not saying that we won't sin. He said in chapter 2 that we will sin. And when we do, we have an advocate to the Father who is the Lord Jesus Christ, one who will stand alongside us. But what he is talking about here is this, is this whole habit of life. That we are, when we are remaining in relationship with Jesus, when we are in this abiding relationship with God, sinning cannot be the regular mode in which we live. It cannot be our default. It cannot be that which we just sort of accept. It cannot be that which we kind of uh, just reason out or excuse. There will be failures, but within this settled habit of life, sin can no longer set the tone. One writer said it like this. It doesn't mean that it's impossible to sin. It means that it's possible not to sin. It doesn't mean that it's impossible to sin, but it's possible not to sin. Not in our own strength, not in our own abilities, not in our own gritting of our own teeth and just sort of willpower and clench the fists and get by, but by the grace of God that comes and fills and fuels our life as we remain in relationship with him. As we live daily, moment by moment, John Wesley liked to talk about in the presence of Jesus. It's in that sort of abiding relationship. And it's as soon as we ever step out of that or take a detour out of that, that, that we leave ourselves prone to a sinful choice. But the, the, the believer will be one who, when that happens, will be quick to pull it back in and say, God, help me. God, forgive me. God, change my heart. Bring me back into this abiding relationship with you so that won't be the case. And surprisingly, or not surprisingly, back in John's day and in our day, there are many, even today, who teach and believe that sinning is just okay. Well, I want to suggest that John would have us to say that it isn't. 
N.T. Wright said it like this, to carry on as though no change of life is required to show whose side you're on uh, is not true because it shows what side you're on and it isn't God's. Being fathered by God means that our new selves, our new real selves, cannot and will not sin habitually as our new way of life. Those who continue to live in Christ will not sin. It's a truth. It's a hope. It's a promise. It's not a warning. It's not a threat. It's a possibility. It's an opportunity. Are you hearing the difference? Here's number five. The Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Man, I love that. I love that. Look at that. Verse 8. But when people keep on sinning, it shows that they belong to the devil. I just like it when the Bible talks about the devil. I don't know why. It's weird. It's old-fashioned, I know. But it's true, and we need to hear it. So there it is, that they belong to the devil. We don't really think about that, do we? But that's what he says. Who has been sinning since the beginning, but the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Uh, Nicole shared that story about Nick Vujicic and the the sex trafficking that was going on in this community that he shared this week uh, in India, I think it was, and just how God began to be at work in and through the girls who were being pulled out of that. They would, they would pull, be pulled out and they would earn enough money to go back and to buy a, a sex slave from the, from the owner to buy a slave out and then the two of them would work hard and they'd go back and buy another one and they were buying women back from the sex trade slavery. And what an amazing, what a, what a beautiful demonstration of the Son of God coming and being at work in the lives of these ladies, in the lives of this ministry, to destroy the works of, of the devil. John insists that God aims to achieve a decisive and unmistakable defeat of sin. A couple weeks ago, Thomas's team was playing soccer. They were ahead one to nothing almost the whole game. And at the very end, the other team scored two quick goals. And then the other, at, at the very, very end, Thomas's team scored a final goal. And so they ended with a tie. Oh, I hate ties. <laughs> you guys know what a tie is like in athletic uh, vernacular? Yeah, it's like kissing your sister. That's, that's what it's like. And, I mean, it's good because it's a kiss, but it's your sister. Ah. Ties. God is not after a tie. God is not after a just, like, I'll win some, you win some, devil. He's not after a, you know, I'll, I'll just manage you, devil. I'll keep you down, and I'll suppress your activity. But we'll sort of remain as viable powers within this world. God is after an unmistakable and decisive step-on-your-throat sort of victory over the devil. The Son of God didn't come to suppress the devil's works. He came to destroy them. I'm not sure we realize how significant that statement is. So think about it with me for one more moment. In our lives, in our families, in our communities, in the systems of the world, 
Jesus came to destroy the sex trafficking industry. He came to destroy the drug trade. He came to destroy the world of pornography. Jesus came to destroy economic injustice. He came to destroy political incorruption. He came to destroy all these things that oppress his people. Systemic and personal evil in the world. The Son of God came to destroy it. I didn't say it. I didn't make this up. The Word of God tells us this. And so we hold on to this truth. Here's number six. God's life is growing in his children. Now the NLT is really nice about this. It talks about God's life. But, but really the, the actual word there is God's seed. God's seed is growing in his children. His, his genes, his DNA, the, the, the common English Bible actually translates it that way. It says God's DNA is growing in his children. I don't think they knew what DNA was back then, but it, the original word is his seed is growing in his children. My dad's here. If he and I were to stand side by side after the service, most of you would see a pretty good family resemblance. If, if we got my son next to us and had the three of us standing right there, you'd be like, oh, he's from him, and he's from him, and you're from him, and you're all together. There's a common characteristic. There's a common gene, a DNA that runs throughout my dad's life is growing in me. My life, in a sense, is growing in my son. And what John is saying here is that God's life is growing in the life of a believer. It, we don't just invite Jesus into our heart. We invite his, in, we invite his life into our life. I was going to have Thomas. He's in children's church today. But for Halloween, he's dressing up as like this, I don't even know what to call it. What do you Fat suit, I guess that's what it's called, because rioter, I'm sorry, that's kind of, but it's, it's just like this big cartoon type of thing that it just inflates, and so you walk around just like this big person, and I was going to have him actually try that on up here, I should have had Ryder do it, but, but because it is an inflates, it's like it just fills this, this, this form, and this is a, a, probably a really bad way of describing <laughs> what, what God's life that is growing in us does. Because look at this verse, verse 9. Those who have been born into God's family do not make a practice of sinning because God's life is in them. Is that it? Yeah. So they can't keep on sinning because they are children of God. We have God's seed in us. We can't, we can't go on making a practice of sinning. And, and as God's seed is in us, it grows, it fills us. And Wesley, John Wesley used to talk about it like this, that, that love and the presence of God so fills our life that it excludes sin. It, there's no room for it as the life of God is filling and fueling our hearts and our lives. God's life is in his children. Number seven, how are we doing? We're getting there. We can love our fellow believers. I just need to tell you this. I don't need to. John needs to tell you. The Word of God needs to tell you. You can love your fellow believers. I heard a story this week about a community in Nebraska, a, a, a community called Seneca, Nebraska. And a number of years ago, I mean, there's like 30 or 40 people in this community, this little town. And... Um, a number of years ago, somebody moved into town, and they were doing some things with their animals that looked somewhat abusive. So some of the people in the community, 
complained to the town council, and they created an ordinance about how you should care for your animals. But other half of the community felt like that ordinance that they had created was actually a put down on the poorer people in town. So they kind of got into it about this particular ordinance, and it basically split, split the community. The, the more the, the poorer folks in town felt like they were sort of being put upon by the more wealthy people in town over this one ordinance. So there was years of just bitter divisiveness in this little community. 30 or 40 people just fighting, just won't talk to each other at all, going different ways on the street when they would come to it. Until finally the, the, the one side decided that they were actually, they hated these people so much that they were going to make a, a, um, a new ordinance. They were going to get signatures, and they were going to bring a new ordinance to the next ballot. And the ordinance was simply this. We want to dissolve this city. We want to renounce our incorporation. We hate them so much that we don't even want to be a part of a city with them. And so they got it on the ballot. They got enough signatures. They got it on the ballot, and it won 16 to 15. And just by that much of emotion, but because of that much bitterness, like a 200-year-old city in the middle of America was done overnight. Isn't that weird? It's so crazy. But this is what the church can look like where there isn't the love that God promises and that God calls us to to live into. How easy and, and tragic yet it would be as we live into that potential reality of divisiveness for the church to lose its significance, for the church to lose its meaning. Will that ever happen necessarily? No, it's God's church. But we can have such a, leave such a black mark on it because of the way that we la- love one another or lack thereof. Now here's the, the promise. If you look at this verse, verse 14, if we love our Christian brothers and sisters, it proves that we have passed from death to life, but a person who has no love is still dead. So here's the thing. When we pass from death to life is when we can begin to love one another. That's the secret. John's been talking about these different different extremes, light and darkness, honesty and dishonesty. And here's a new one, life and death. And what he says is this love for one another becomes possible and only becomes possible when we pass from death to life. When we come into this new living and loving relationship with God, when we have been so filled with the love of God that it's not our love that we're trying to pour out to the people around us who may be doing mean things to us or maybe people that we just can't get along with. It's the love of God that is being poured out from us. It's a hope. It's a promise. It's not a threat. It's not a warning. I guess it is in some ways, but it's a possibility that we can love our fellow believers. Here's number eight. We can know what real love is. I want to know what love is. I want you. I'm sorry. I just kind of, yeah, different, different love. But we can know what real love is. Look at this verse, verse 16. We know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and our sisters. John says we can know what love looks like because we can see it in Jesus. The dying Christ, willingly giving himself up for others, serves as this model of our love. It's self-sacrificing. It is 
active, not reactive. It is committing fully to the family of God, serving in Christ's name with a spirit marked by less of me and and more of Jesus. When we serve where we are, when we love where we are, we lay down our lives for others daily. We can know. We don't have to wonder. Number nine, we can stand confidently before God. We can stand confidently before God. Probably the thing that um, makes people more anxious than just about anything in terms of religious ideas is the thought of standing before God. Right? You're getting a little nervous just thinking about it. And, you know, okay, uh, one day, we hear that all the time, we'll get to stand before God. And, and, and maybe that starts to make the hairs raise up on the back of our necks or a little bit sweaty palms or whatever it might be. And we're just kind of thinking, you know, well, this, these anxious thoughts, even dread maybe to us. What John wants us to know is that as we are filled with the love of God, as we are expressing that love to those around us, we don't have to worry. That we can stand and look forward to that time and stand even now confidently before God. And and right now, maybe you're thinking about those times when you weren't loving to someone. And you're just imagining God like, wow, marking that down, looking for you. When are you going to do it again? But that's not the image that John conveys here. The image is one of, of a God who is for us and not against us. A God who is filling us again with his love so that we might love others. And that as we do love others, just rejoicing with us. And when we don't, ready to help us and to forgive us and to send us in a new direction with a new power, with a new possibility. Ready to help us live in such a way that, that we don't have to shy away from him. I mean, what father wants his kids to shy away from him? Not a good one. Not a good one. Our Father wants us to stand confidently before Him, to stand boldly before Him. He wants us to love one another in such a way that we can know that we know that we know that we are where and who God is wanting us to be. And when we're falling short in that, He wants to help us so that we can stand confidently before Him. Is there a verse for that? Our actions will show that we belong to the truth. So we will be confident when we stand before God. Here's number 10. Who, who believed that we could do it? We, we got here. Uh, number 10. We will receive from God whatever we ask. Now this is the weirdest like truth, perhaps, of this passage. And I actually, when I got to it, I tried to find a different one. I was like, I don't even know. That, that doesn't fit. This, this whole thing has been about uh, loving others, sacrificing, selfless action, love for, for the, the body of believers around us. And now he ends with this. We will receive from God whatever we ask. Look at verse 22. And we will receive from him whatever we ask. There it is. Because we obey him and do the things that please him. That's a pretty important part. 
John said it like this in his gospel in John 15. He said, if you remain, there's that word again, in me and my words remain in you, whatever you wish, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. God hears and answers prayer as we regularly obey him and do what he pleases. It's only after we have demonstrated generosity in our actions that we can ask like this. It's only after that we have given to others that we are positioned to ask for ourselves. And it's then when we do ask that we will be asking what God already wants for us anyway. And again, God loves to give good gifts to his kids. And that is what we are. Remember, that was number one. Uh, what's true about you? These believers needed edification. They needed encouragement. I'm guessing that we do as well today. They needed to be reminded about what was true about them. They needed to be reminded, a quick summary, that they were children of God, that their future was certain, that the Son of God, I don't have them all, I don't think, that the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. They needed to be reminded that the love of God had brought them from life, from death to life, and that their love for one another was therefore possible. They needed to know the truth that God forgives them when they don't love each other perfectly, that they can come confidently before him. They needed to hear the truth that their father loves and longs to give them good gifts. And we need to be reminded of the same truths. Have, have any of you ever uh, looked or looked recently at your spam folder in your email? Um, I never look at my spam folder. So if you email me sometime and I don't get back to you, well, two likelihoods are possible. One is that I just didn't get back to you. But the other is that it's in my spam folder. I never look at it. But I did this week, and, and it was good because it was the end of the month, and my spam folder deletes every month. I don't know if you even know what your spam folder does, but I found out that mine just deletes all of its incoming messages once a month. But it's coming to the end of October, so I was able to see almost all the spam emails that had come in to my account throughout the month of of uh, October. I don't think any of your emails were in there. So I'm looking around trying to remember if any of I saw any of your names in there. I don't think I did. But I did get some other great emails. Maybe you're familiar with some of these. There was one from the Bank of America. And um, it was telling me that it wanted to do some routine maintenance on my account. And that all I needed to do was sign in with my uh, account information and they would begin that routine maintenance. So nice of them to send me an email. I don't have a Bank of America account. All right. Um, another one I got was from Walgreens. I had won a $50 gift card to Walgreens. I've never been in Walgreens in my life. But I had won somehow. All I needed to do was click on this link to claim my prize. It's a wonderful opportunity. I got an email from a couple. I'm not making this stuff up. You know I'm not because you get them too. I got an email from a couple who had won the lottery in England. And, and they had decided to donate 10 million pounds to a group of lucky winners that had been just submitted to them through the Google verification process. 
I don't know what that means. They don't either. But, but uh, I, I, So I was one of a handful that will be receiving a distribution of this 10 million pounds. I mean, can you believe it? All I needed to do was send them my information and, uh, you know, everything about me. Uh, and I just give them that and they would send me that information or that, that money. Um, right, you know, right from the right to my bank. It was going to be awesome. I, I had another offer to participate in a business collaboration that promised to be very profitable. Um, I think this was, maybe I just have, oh, I have one. This, this one was my favorite, I think. Uh, you know, Madam Monica Johnson Zongo from Burkina Faso in West Africa. She is evidently the senior, I wrote this down, she's the senior accountant of the Foreign Remittance Department for the Bank of Africa. That's... (laughs) She was writing to tell me that she has the intent of transferring $6,500,000 to my bank account. But I needed to write her back to let her know that once I got it, I was going to share it with her. I, I've never heard that, but maybe it was some sort of a shady deal. <laughs> then I'm going to share it back with her. Uh, so she just needed confirmation and my account information so she could send me that. And, and I was really, I'm, I was supposed to keep it confidential. <laughs> and I was supposed to act immediately. So I've done two wrong things. I probably... Written myself out of that possible three and a quarter million dollars. Sorry, honey. Happy birthday. I did get several messages from friends in Russia as well. That was nice. I didn't know I had friends in Russia, but they were messaging me and just kind of... I was actually afraid to open those ones up. (laughs) So I don't know what they said. I don't know what they said. Um, The Internet has helped to revive an old saying. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And uh, I say that to my kids. I say that to my parents. I say that to myself. I say that to you. If anyone thought I was being serious just now, let me quickly correct you. those Those are all... It's spam. That's why they land in that account. Because it's not true. None of it's true. I'm a little bit tempted by this six and a half million, but I, I, I know it's... No, I'm not. I'm just kidding. It's not true. If something sounds too good to be true, it probably is. I thought about that as I read this passage this week, because as I read it over and over, I mean, the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. Those who... Follow him, have the life of God growing in us. Those who follow him, it's, it's, it's not impossible for them to sin, but it's possible that they might not sin. As I listen to these promises, we, I really can love you and others like you and not just this nice world out there that's easy for me to love because I really don't know them, but I got to hang out with you and you got to hang out with me. But it's possible for me to come from death to life in such a way that we really could love one another. That the community of faith would not be a place of division and hurt, but a place of love. I mean, when I, when I read this, I thought, 
they're not going to believe it. I can't preach that. And people won't buy it. And they'll, they'll, we're cynics because we've gotten too many emails from people in Africa offering us millions of dollars. And so even when we read the Word of God, we step back perhaps and we say, eh, yeah, but this was written a long time ago. It's different today. John didn't know what was happening in my life. It's too good to be true. Well, here's the, here's the great thing. I can't make you believe this is true. But, but you don't have to click on any links. You, you don't have to submit any personal information to me. You can simply offer it to God. And he can do with it what he wants. And, and you can begin to maybe even act like these are true. <laughs> even if you don't totally believe it, you can begin to act like these are true. And, and before long, it, the, the truth and the reality of these promises and what's true about who God is and what's true about who we are, what's true about who the church is, might just begin to show themselves to be real. Let's pray together, can we? Worship team, come on up. Lord, thanks so much for uh, the, the truths of this passage of Scripture. Thank you, Father, for the Word of God that, that can come to us. And I know this has been a ton of material, lots of stuff, a long chapter, lots of... Lots of words, <laughs> 10 truths, come on, that's too many. But it's, it's, thank you. Thank you that through your word you are reminding us of what's true about who you are, of what's true about who you're making us to be, what's true about the possibilities you have in mind for us as individuals and as the church, what's true about our life with you both now and forever. Help us to live in to that truth. Help us to submit ourselves, not to the words that I have spoken, but to the word of God. And help us to, to, to not only live into it, but to buy into it. To, may your Holy Spirit who lives in us just convict us of the truth. May your Spirit just help us to see these things, to be true. And help us to see these truths as they are lived out and played out in our lives. Help these truths to begin to take form in our hands and in our feet, in our hearts, in our lives. Help us to not just think that this was for someone else way back then, but that this is for us right now. Thank you, God, for your love that reaches to us, that not only calls us, but makes us to be your children as we respond in faith and all that that opens up as we live into that beautiful reality. May we long for your truth today, O oh God. We pray this in your name. Amen.